data analysis, it's best described in three words. It's explore, pioneer and innovate. The world beyond. Emotion is a tomorrow. Brought to you by Michael Mack. Welcome to my newest episode of my podcast. Today our guest is Katharina Schüler. Welcome, Katharina. Hello, Michael. I'm happy to be here. Let me introduce you, Katharina, quickly to you. She is a forward-thinking pioneer in the field of data literacy, data ethics, and data culture. As a statistician, she has been leading one of the most innovation consulting firms with a focus on data strategies, data science, and artificial intelligence for almost 20 years. She has received numerous prestigious awards, for instance, from the Boston Consulting Group and the Handelsblatt and LinkedIn named her top voice. She advises renewed companies, scientific institutions, and ministries, the federal chancellery, and various federal institutes. Let me start with my first uh, quick question I'd like to ask you to give me short answers. One. Which subject did you prefer in school? Math or PE or as we say in German, Sportunterricht? <laughs> oh, I was always a very sporty person, but I preferred math. Two. What initially drew you to being interested in statistics? Oh, I must say that I hated statistics when I was in school, even though I did my... Um, great in, in math. I did not understand why I should learn how to play around with cars on a parking lot or gummy bears or people in a birthday party and I did not really understand why I should learn about that. So it was quite bad in statistics and stochastics at school. But then I started to study psychology and I had to learn statistics and suddenly it was like a light was switched on in my head and I understood how this worked and that made me switch my major and then I studied statistics. Three. Is there really such a thing as bad or good decision? I'd say a decision is always dependent on the context and what you want to reach with the decision. So maybe there are situations where it's bad or good when it comes to global moral values like um, killing a person or so. But in general, I would say there's always a range for decisions that are maybe better or worse. Four. Do you make your decisions based on gut feeling or logic? It's a combination of both. So the first book that I published is called Statistics and Intuition. And you cannot deal with data without a gut feeling, without a... Yeah, it's, it's always kind of an art that you need. And of course, you need to be proficient in the tools that you use, um, the methods, the, the algorithms, the software tools and so on, and understand how to deal with data and not. But sometimes it's... Yeah, it's, it's an idea that suddenly comes to mind, a gut feeling where to look at um, so that I understand what the data mean, because data and the meaning of data are two different things, and the meaning of data is not in the data. Let me start with a provocative statement question. All data, as you just were saying, can be misused. Would it then not be safer for the broad public to not provide the masses with access to big data? And does everybody need to know the truth? Does everybody want to know the truth? That's how I would like to reframe your question. I sometimes think about that because I'm 
really an advocate for data literacy and AI literacy. That means I often say and write we should teach data literacy already in primary school. Um, but sometimes I ask myself, does really everybody want to really understand how data analysis works, how statistics work, what can data can tell us and what not? Because Of course, and it makes it harder maybe sometimes to believe what you believe or you have to question your beliefs and your experiences when you really start questioning data critically. So the question is, should we provide everyone with access to data and the tools to analyze data? Well, maybe yes, but maybe we need something like a driver's license for data. So It's the same question as if to ask, should everyone be allowed to drive a car or to use um, private personal mobility? Yes, but only after they have proven that they are able to do that, that they have proven that they don't misuse the tools, that they don't misuse the methods. You once did say, and it's quite interesting what you were just stating, um, that data can be easily manipulated without changing the actual figures. Um, when you talk about having a driver license to understand how big data and data analysis works, can you give us some examples how data could be misused or misinterpreted? Yes, and I think when I, when I talk about driver's license, I would say it's important for people who have a certain influence, like, for example, journalists. Maybe you have heard of the Albright study, which is an annual study about the proportion of women on boards, the women in, in, in top management positions. And in 2018, the Manager magazine published a headline that, that, that the proportion of women on boards increased by 0.7%. And the message was quite clear. We discuss about quotas, we discuss about promoting women, but nothing happens. And this headline only works because we have an idea that the proportion Portion of women in top management positions or in boards in Germany is not 95% and it's not 50%, but it's rather between 5% and 10%. And in fact, it was exactly 7.3% in one year and 8% in the year after. That means 7.7% was also wrong because it's 0.7 percentage points. It's about a difference and not a ratio. But you can also express it as a ratio and 0.7 percentage points related to 7.3% is an increase of almost 10%. And suddenly the message sounds completely different. So if you say the proportion of women on board increased by almost 10%, everyone thinks, wow, that's a lot. If you say it increases by 0.7 percentage points, most people think, okay, that's nothing. Why do we discuss this topic? If data can be interpreted in so many different ways, um, does that mean that our supposed reality is actually open to interpretation as well? Definitely. Um, our reality is shaped by facts, but it's even more shaped by our perception of the facts. And the perception that we have of facts depends on our experiences, on our expectations, on our values and also our attitudes. Because data is always interpreted in context and data without context is meaningless. 
For example, there was an, an Instagram post by a German National Office of Statistics that told that the traffic accidents have increased in 2022. Well, obviously, traffic accidents depend on the amount of traffic, and the amount of traffic was less in 2021 because of Corona. So it means absolutely nothing if you just say, traffic accidents have increased in 2022. And that's why we need data literacy. What is, in my opinion, the core of data literacy, it's to understand what's in the data and what is our interpretation of the data. Does it mean something is big or small? Is it important or not? And that is not something that is reality, but it's our interpretation of reality. So how do we get actually people, I mean, data analysis, when I was reading your resume and your life experience, sounds very dry and boring. I mean, you were mentioning that in your school days, you would not have a, a mathematic um, as a chosen topic and you were not interested in statistic. So how do we get the broad audience actually convinced that it is really an exciting topic? Oh, I hope that I can convince more people and that's why I often talk about the the wonders in our world that you only can find when you analyze data and let's be honest that's what we do day by day we observe something and suddenly we detect some patterns that was what happened to Newton when he watched apples fall down the tree and suddenly detected oh there is a pattern and then he Uh, learn something about gravity. And for me, it's data analysis. It's best described in three words. It's explore, pioneer, and innovate, because it helps us understand how our world is structured and how our world works, and that includes ourselves. So, for example, um, recently I did some research why it is so hard to bring more women into top management. Um, It's easy to say that women do not want to lead, but what we know so far is that women are more satisfied when they like their job, but we do not know when they like it. So what makes a position, especially in top management, attractive for women? And if you ask women directly, then their answers are probably biased because they answer according to social desirability. So they said it should be collaborative and not so directive. Um, so maybe you don't get the correct answer when you just ask them. But when you analyze the patterns in the data, when you analyze what increases their uh, satisfaction, then this can reveal characteristics of a job that are associated with what makes a job attractive. In my research, I found that those characteristics of jobs are different for men and women. Um, and this is highly relevant in practice. And what I found is that how should leadership positions be designed is not so much a matter of the facts. Um, it's more about the narrative you have about the job so that you tell women what the job is about and what is important for them when they want to lead. So you can tell us the truth, actually, that what our female collaborators like when they go to the work? I can tell you methods how you can find out the truth. I think that's a lifelong lesson to learn, no? but um, it will be interesting <laughs> to debate it in more future or in more detail. But it's interesting that um, it's more the uh, the way you deal with it than the pure um, numbers. But that's something I should look into more closer in the future, I guess, for my uh, personal endeavor. In those days where we have a lot of real data, interpreted data, computer-generated data, um, how can we make sure that we always have a, let's say, 
raw data bases. I mean, doesn't it get more and more complicated to understand what real data mm. is? Well, there is one misunderstanding, and that is that data is something that's objective or the data is something that is given, even raw data. There's always a subjective decision. It's already about the questions that you ask, what you're interested in, and then the way you collect the data. If you do a survey or if you do a measurement and then the measurement techniques you use, and they all have impact on what is coded in the data and what it tells you about reality. But I wouldn't say that is a problem. It's a chance because it shows us that we have different ways of, of yeah, approaching reality, better understanding reality, and especially from comparison of data from different sources or different populations, we can learn a lot about what is really the fact and what is related to the way we perceive the facts or the way we interpret the facts. Yeah, and that's maybe we can can learn to understand how the way data is collected and how the way data is analyzed and how the way data is presented affects how we perceive it. Because especially the communication of data has a huge impact on what we think is real and what we think is not real. So speaking about data, I mean, um, looking on a um, European side of collecting data, we are very limited and do so. And um, for interpreting data, I mean, it takes you quite a lot of data, <laughs> which you can analyze. Um, mm. Where are we in a global uh, context to China and to the USA? Uh, where does Europe stand? Is it the old uh, lady or the old man when it comes to collecting data? And what do we have to change in future to get more data to predict the future? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that the GDPR is a problem. It's rather the way how we in Germany interpret the GDPR. And my impression is that the GDPR is often used as an excuse why we should not be allowed to do something with data or why we should not get access to data, which is something that you can see in the way how For example, we dealt with Corona with the vaccination data and how Austria dealt with it. And both we in Germany and Austria, we all have to follow the GDPR. But Austria was able to create a vaccination register that was really, really helpful in understanding how the vaccination worked, how protective it was, and also when problems appeared, so side effects, bad and negative effects. And we were not able to analyze that in Germany, and we still are not, because we don't dare to, well, let's say, interpret the GDPR in a more flexible way, which is obviously possible because our European neighbors do it. And on the other hand, I talk with colleagues from the United States about data literacy, And they said, oh, wow, you can be so lucky that you have the GDPR because you can afford to be less data literate. You can afford that, that your population, that your citizens do not really know what can happen with their data because they are protected. And we in the United States, we are not. And this can be a huge threat for democracy. But looking from a business side, is it really positive that we have less data than other countries? It's a misinterpretation to believe that more data means more wisdom or more knowledge. So it's about the quality of the data and how we deal with the data. And my profession, statistics, was developed to deal with a small number of data 
and get as much information as possible out of that data. And now we have data science, we have the tools, the big data tools to deal with huge amounts of data. And my impression is that this often misleads people to believe that we need huge amounts of data to understand how things work or how, how relations are. But if there is a true pattern, you can also find it with a smaller amount of data, as long as the data has high quality. So what you say is like we shouldn't be afraid of companies like TikTok, Meta, Instagram, and all those companies collecting huge data. I mean, the prediction in Germany is it feels to me like, oh, we're not going into the cloud because it can be looked at from American politics or like a regulation act. So do you think we don't have to worry about companies like TikTok or Instagram? What is your point on that? No, that's not what I'm saying, but I think we need to worry about them for other reasons. We need to worry about them because they can create an image of reality for many people that enforces what we call their bubbles so that they, for example, you already have that when you use the search engine. So the algorithms in the search engine decide what you can see about the world. They prioritize the answers and the answers look different when you choose even your internet browser. And even if you if you decide to enter the internet with an anonymous browser like Tor, for example, then it looks completely different. And this is an exercise I would recommend everyone to take, especially young people, Open the internet, but open it in an anonymous window um, with an anonymous browser and see how it looks like and see how it changes what you suddenly can see and what you suddenly cannot see anymore because you pay for it with your data. So if we go then to the in more industrial use cases, when you see that um, big giants like uh, Mercedes and um, other car manufacturers has been sleeping, uh, the, the beauty sleep of the long history of German Uh, manufacturing and now there comes up a Tesla around the corner who literally is a data collecting machine um, by mm. um, having everything recorded. How do you feel about that? Can such business model destroy whole industries by uh, not building the best car mechanically but being the best software guided car? I think it will change the way how we perceive mobility and, and what it means for us as Yeah, as individuals and also as a society. So what is a car then? Is the car just there to bring us from point A to point B? And is it about Freude am Fahren, so enjoy driving? Or is it about, okay, it's just a means and we want to do something different. Is this especially about autonomous driving? And then the experience that you have when you drive in a car is completely different. And of course, this will change whole industries. But I mean, we had the change also when streaming came up, Netflix came up and so on. So it was a complete change to linear TV. And I mean, we still have our TV stations in Germany, but they have to change the way how, how they present um, their programs. And maybe that's because of my personality, but I think it's positive. It's a challenge. It's a way to learn and a way to critically think about our business models. And I don't think it's a bad thing if maybe an industry is in, in danger or an industry is threatened or challenged. It's an opportunity to learn, an opportunity to make things better. Why should we keep something that's maybe not wanted anymore anymore? by the consumers. 
So when you look into the future, you were mentioning that uh, platforms, obviously, and I've been talking to a lot of people, they say like it's about distribution of data. That's the future business model. Who has the biggest platform and who can distribute the best and where is data collected? Looking into the streaming market, you were mentioning it, that it's mostly dominated by big American companies, whether it's Netflix, Amazon, Disney or Paramount. Do you see a niche for European companies to be a part in that race? Or do you think it's too late to join uh, the party of a global streaming platforms? I think it's not only a technological question. It's a question about, well, attitudes, a question about values. Because this is more about the content of what is streamed. So if we get more and more used to well, let's say American, um, serious American movies or like that, this will change the way of information that we want to consume, or the, the kind of information. Let's say, for example, TikTok or Netflix, maybe more TikTok and YouTube and so on. So we see that there is a trend to very short videos and quick entertainment and people scroll through it and their attention span gets shorter and shorter. And this is maybe something that changes more. And the question is, do we want to to have something different, to present something different? Is there still space for some, let's say, classical European movies that take their time? Something is developed over time and you need to focus for quite a long time until something happens? Or is it getting um, faster and faster and um, yeah, much more action in the way information is presented. And that's a question that everyone should ask themselves. Do I follow that trend? And am I aware that I follow that trend? Am I aware that I might have attention problems? And how does this affect my life and maybe in other areas of life? So, for example, let me think about the question of, of finding a partner. Yeah, Online dating has changed it a lot. And if you have this... Uh, Tinder switching to the left or switching to the right, we see potential partners as a consumer good, something that you can exchange easily. So we can say this is good, we can say this is bad, we can say it's it doesn't matter, but of course it changes the way we perceive other people, we deal with other people and how we respect other people. And it's important to be aware of that fact and not just follow the trend. Which is kind of Difficult. Um, if I'm looking to myself and um, people around me, I mean, somehow big tech companies are setting the tone of how we consume media in, in, in the future. Um, what I'm just trying to think of is like when we're talking about AI, when we're talking about the way we want to perceive things in the future, that we don't want to be manipulated in the future by big tech companies. What is our niche? What 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 can Europeans do? And um, what are our values? Do you think it's too late to present our values in, 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 in ethic questions like in the AI technology or in the way we want to live our life? Or do you think it just takes some time that uh, the old sleeping beauty is waking up again and um, striking back with different uh, formats and way of consuming um, data? No, I don't think it's too late. Um, and my personal experience is that there is 
a desire for values, a desire for moral values also in the United States. And there is a lot of critics, especially among experts. Maybe you have heard about the organization IEEE, Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers. It's the largest technical organization in the world, like the VDE in Germany, but much larger. And they develop technical standards, like, for example, the Wi-Fi standard. But for 10 years or so, they have been focusing on ethics, AI and data and developed several standards. For example, a model process that describes how ethical thinking can be included in the development of algorithmic systems from the very beginning, kind of ethics by design. And I have the honor to chair one of those working groups to develop a global standard for data and AI literacy. And it's a lot about values. And we discuss a lot how attitudes, values and ethics can be part of data literacy so that it's not only about a skill set and a tool set, but also about a mindset. And that's what gives me hope, because people who are in the working group, they are from the US, they are from Asia, there's even someone from China, and they all feel that we, we need to think about values and need to discuss values. Well, at least that's interesting to hear, and I hope that, um, that there will be more and more awareness of how data and technology will change our everyday life. Um, let's stick to the um, topic of artificial intelligence. It's uh, currently on everybody's mind, especially in the era of data analysis. This is a huge topic of the future. Let's talk about two aspects, the advantages and the disadvantages. Let's start on a positive note. What are the advantages of artificial intelligence when it comes to data? Well, um, AI can solve many of those well boring tasks that prevents us humans from being creative, like doing basic research or preparing presentations or even coding tasks. And this is especially true for data experts. So we often spend 60 to 80 percent or even more of our time on finding data, cleaning data, preparing data. And hopefully this can be done by algorithms in the near future. And that would be great because then we can spend those valuable human resources much more on problem solving, on creativity and on true innovation from data because all the boring stuff, all the preparation stuff is hopefully someday done by AI. And this is not only true for experts, so this AI can make our everyday life much easier in many situations. And when you talk about the negative sides of artificial intelligence, what is the danger from your point of view what um, artificial intelligence can bring us? Hmm. Well, algorithms are extremely good at doing things right, but algorithms have no clue if they do the right things. And this is a danger because this is a human judgment that will always be needed. And it's, it is crucial that we as humans, that we develop a good balance between Overtrust and distrust in algorithms. So to understand where they are helpful and where they are not helpful or perhaps even harmful. So we need to develop the competences to identify, first of all, where AI is already present in our everyday lives and how it influences the way we see the world and how it influences our habits, our behavior. Let me tell you a, a joke of, about a machine learning algorithm that, that um, maybe reflects what I mean. 
a machine learning algorithm walks into a bar and the barkeeper asks, what do you want to drink? And then the algorithm replies, well, what is everyone else drinking? And that means AI will probably reinforce uniformity and weaken diversity. And there is a famous case of, of Amazon. So they try to use algorithms and AI to make their application process more objective and more neutral. And then they found that the algorithm sorted out almost everyone who was not a white male between a certain age range. Because the algorithm learned from the data that it had um, that women and non-binary persons and people of color had a smaller chance to get a job. So the algorithm just sorted them out from the very beginning. So this is also um, the case for AI-generated language. AI-generated language reflects language, opinions, and the attitudes of the majority. And I think this can really be a danger for democracy. And that's the main reason why I believe that basic data and AI literacy and critical thinking with respect to data and algorithms, that this is essential for our democracy. Do you believe that um, AI ever can make truly ethical decisions according to our human understanding? No, I think it cannot, because I mean it would have to reflect on a meta level about its decisions, and this is something that's really human. Algorithms always follow a, a utility function that they have, an optimization function, but they cannot think about the optimization function itself or the utility function. So what is valuable for them, what is good or not, we as human beings, we can change our criteria, um, what we think we should do and what not. So we can think about, are we doing the right things or not? And an algorithm will never ask that. It will just follow the optimization function. And that's one reason why I think it's highly unlikely that an AI algorithm or an AI system will ever take truly ethical decisions. That's so interesting listening to your words. Now, Katharina, you are, I would say, one of the forefront of understanding what's happening out there. You are somebody who is extremely well educated when it comes to data and all those uh, models uh, which shape our future. Me sitting here in my studio listening to you and um, saying, oh my God, I don't understand everything she's saying. But um, if you could give our um, listeners out there just some examples how we should um, be out there. You mentioning take another browser. How can we get more aware? I mean, of course, everybody should read your, uh, your literature, what you're publishing. But for those who are not reading um, um, your words, what, what, can you give them any hints or ideas what to do to uh, reflect their behavior? Mm. Well, what was a magical moment for me was when I realized that data literacy in the way I see it, that means always ask yourself, what do I really see? What is really in the data? And what is my interpretation of the data? Is exactly the same principle that is um, behind nonviolent communication. So the basic principle of nonviolent communication is always ask yourself, okay, what do I really perceive? What did the other person really say, really do? And what happens inside of me? What is my reaction to that? What is my interpretation of that? And we should develop the same attitude when it comes to data. Always ask yourself, okay, what do I really see? And is there perhaps someone who wants me to see a certain thing? 
I mean, it's the old question, who financed a study? Who presented the data to me? Who presents the statistics to me? This is something that can give you a valuable clue about the question if there's some manipulation or not. And of course, there are some really basic rules like correlation is not causation. Just because something is statistically correlated, it does not mean that one is the cause of the other. Or be careful when someone presents you relative figures. Relative risks always appear larger than absolute risks. And this happens often in medicine. So if someone tells you, well, if you eat, uh, don't know, salami or sausage, this will double the risk for a certain type of cancer. Okay, what does it mean? Does it mean it increases from one in a million to two in a million? This would be doubling the risk, but is it relevant? So be careful when it comes to relevant numbers. Always think about underlying figures, which is about the, for example, the incidents in Corona. The seven-day incidence was calculated based on confirmed cases. But that tells you absolutely nothing as long as you do not know how many people were tested. So then confirmed cases tells you nothing. So be critical. Ask, where does this number come from? Where does the data come from? Has anyone an interest in manipulating me? And know some basic relations from statistics, some basic statistical rules. And this will help you find your way through the jungle of data and algorithms. If you look now to um, a lot of people listening to us and they say like, oh my God, you hear like artificial intelligence is coming, big data, is my job in danger? Who would you say, uh, be careful, do something else tomorrow because your job won't be there in the future? Do people have to be afraid of um, artificial intelligence losing their jobs? I think the more repetitive your tasks are, the less creative they are, um, the less communicative they are, the more they are in danger. But I would recommend to everyone, I would advise everyone, try to prove yourself valuable as a human being. Because I just said, okay, when it comes about communication, but a nice, polite and friendly chatbot will always be preferred to a unfriendly person at the counter who tells you, oh, I'm not interested in your problem, just go away. Then also your communication job can be in danger. But if you're a human being, if you prove that you're interested in others, that you can give value to others, then you will always be necessary and your job will be there in the future as well. Katarina, you've taken away my last question, actually, because it's danger to the facts AI-powered data analysis alone won't enable us to make better decisions by a long shot. So literally what you're saying is like always be friendly, use your brain between your two ears and um, just try to talk to people and try to find things which... Uh, are not database when it comes to gut feeling, emotions, mm. and um, a sense of human being. Seven years from now. But still, I have to ask you the last question. Seven years from now, what will our world be look like in terms of data, AI, and facts? I think data and AI will do a lot of jobs that at the moment take a lot of time, um, that are boring, that are repetitive, that don't require thinking and don't require creativity but this can be a huge chance because we you know, as a human beings we have one asset and that's gut feeling we as human beings we can learn from one or two observations we enter a room 
and immediately feel, okay, people are friendly or not. I am safe here or I am not. And this is something that AI cannot do. And I think in seven years, we will understand what it truly means when we say machines will tell us more about what humanity really is. And I hope that this will be our guiding principle in seven years from now. Katharina, that was um, amazing speaking to you about a topic which I honestly have to say I'm not um, uh, really into that so much as you are. So I think it's great value for our listeners um, to understand a little bit more about data that they should use their imagination and their gut feeling um, when they meet a person in real life. So thank you so much for your time taken and uh, I hope um, that you will tell a lot of people uh, by reading your books and um, studies um, to not to be afraid, but to see an opportunity in the future. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Michael. It was a pleasure. Michael Mack presents The World Beyond. Emotionaries of Tomorrow. A Mac One Production.